Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Our gospel lesson for today is from Matthew chapter 16, and it reads, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this should never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. For you are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Lord, as we enter into this time of teaching, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. God, you are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. New Testament professor Jim Somerville had an assignment for his class. Take a blank sheet of paper, write the name of Jesus in the center of it, and draw a circle around it. Come across a character in the Gospels, write their name on the paper as close to Jesus' inner circle as you think they were in his life. Now, I'm not sure what the purpose of this assignment was. Dr. Somerville was not my professor. But I'm pretty confident that Peter's name would be very close to Jesus on that paper, as close as possible. To continue thinking about a classroom, we remember that Peter was a star student. When Jesus said, do you want to leave everything and be my disciple, Peter raised his hand. When given the opportunity to follow Jesus, Peter was the first to leap out of his chair, to prove his faith and to walk on water. Just a few verses before our reading for today, Jesus asked his disciples what sort of rumors they've heard about him. And they tell him a few. Some people think you're John the Baptist, or another prophet of old reincarnated, like maybe Elijah or Jeremiah. Are they laughing as they see this? Or do they have their heads cocked to the side thinking, well, maybe. It's easy to answer for some people, right? Some people are saying this. Some people have a problem with you. Some people think you're crazy. But Jesus keeps pushing. Jesus makes it personal. Who do you say that I am? Peter's hand shoots up yet again. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Good job, Peter. High fives all around. You get a gold star. He gets more than a gold star, though. Jesus tells him, Peter, Peter, just like the name Petra means rock, You're going to be the foundation stone for the new church that I'm building. This church will be invincible against evil. For someone who has teacher's pet tendencies, this has to have Peter flying high. His chest puffed out, his head full of ideas, 
for when Jesus makes him a right-hand man in this new kingdom. What sort of expectations would have filled Peter's head at that moment? Is he really going to be the foundation of the church of the Messiah, the long-awaited rescuer of Israel from their oppressors? Visions of grandeur, probably, perhaps violently overthrowing the current regime. Peter is very quick to pull his sword at Jesus' arrest at Gethsemane, after all. Maybe he's imagining an elaborate throne right beside King Jesus. Maybe even Peter will get to wear a crown. Peter believes that Jesus has come to make Israel great again. We know that moment is short-lived, though. Jesus begins to tell them that he's going to suffer greatly at the hands of the church. Not just suffer greatly, but be executed by the state. Peter, quick to show off his devotion, he jumps to Jesus' defense. Get those words out of your mouth, Jesus. This will never happen. I will never let it happen. Peter's not just exclaiming in surprise either. Verse 22 says that he's rebuking Jesus. He's pulled him aside. He's trying to set him straight. Jesus, this is a terrible plan. We won't stand for it. You're scaring people, Jesus. It's a reasonable rebuke, really. Jesus did just say that the powers of death would not prevail against the church, the church that Peter will be a foundation of. But how is that going to happen if Jesus is killed? Jesus has other thoughts on the matter, doesn't he? Get behind me, Satan, he says. Boy, does Jesus tend to go off script. Peter the rock has become the stumbling block. Why might Peter have this response to Jesus talking about coming suffering? Peter has left everyone and everything for Jesus. How embarrassing and disappointing would it be for Jesus to turn into a weak pseudo-Messiah, which is what it sounds like Jesus is talking about. If they come after Jesus, isn't it logical for Peter to assume that they'll come after the disciples next? Peter has plenty of reasons to resist Jesus, human reasons like self-preservation, a desire to avoid suffering and shame. Anyway, it's only human to want to help those we love avoid suffering. But Jesus doesn't do things for human reasons, does he? Jesus tells Peter not to center his mindset on human things, but on divine things, things of God. While Peter is daydreaming about a crown, Jesus brings a cross into the equation. Take up your cross, Jesus says. This is the second time Jesus has brought a cross into the conversation, and he's starting to make people nervous. We read this story, the gospel story, knowing how it ends, with an execution, but also with a miraculous resurrection, with the coming of the Holy Spirit. We see a cross, and we immediately have context of the gospel story in its entirety, but not Peter, not yet. For him, a cross is only an instrument of torture and of shame. It's a public punishment for a criminal or an enemy of the state. What is with Jesus and the cross fixation, Jesus Peter might be wondering? Why would Jesus want his followers, his closest friends, to willingly take up a cross and suffer? It must have something to do with setting our minds on divine things instead of human things. Human things like self-preservation, security, and comfort are not bad on their own, but they can become a false idol. Setting our minds to divine things instead of human things can feel like a sacrifice, but it is also 
freedom. You see, when we put our name on the center of the piece of paper, when we think we are the masters of our fate, and the world and our loved ones are ours to save, we will never feel safe and secure. When we see and experience suffering with ourselves at the center of the paper, everything is thrown off balance. When we get ourselves out of the center, we can see that God is in control, that God knows best, and we're just somewhere on the journey doing our best, which, like Peter, is sometimes great and sometimes not so great. When our best doesn't feel like enough, that's okay, because God is enough. When we can't protect those that we love, it's okay, because they are held by God in this age and in the age to come. How do we know the difference between divine things and human things anyway? The Kentucky poet and author Wendell Berry says that there are no unholy places, just sacred places and desecrated places. Divine things aren't the things that come to mind only when we think of saints or monks. Divine things center Christ and his kingdom, things like compassion and justice, like enjoying the good things in our lives with gratitude and with generosity. Divine things are everywhere and don't always involve sacrifice and self-denial. But sometimes they do. It's been said that Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Jesus is the one that suffering people are drawn toward. He surrounds himself with them. He sees them and he loves them. He helps them. Sometimes he challenges them, especially if they're feeling high and mighty and overly comfortable. Sometimes we think that God's ultimate plan for us is to be comfortable and prosperous. According to a study that came out two weeks ago from LifeWay Research, 50% of American churchgoers say their church teaches them God will bless them if they give more money to the church and charities. This has gone up from 38% in 2017. Additionally, churchgoers are more likely now than in 2017 to believe that God's aim for them is to prosper financially and that they have to do something for God in order to be blessed by God. I feel like the early church would be scratching their heads at that one. Reverend, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way, Some have be, been tempted to revise Jesus' command to read, Go ye into all the world, keep your blood pressure down, and I will make you a well-adjusted personality. Jesus, the disciples, and the earliest Christians found anything but the easy life in following the way of Jesus. They found exclusion and persecution from the government, from society, even from their families and congregations. They found comfort in their affliction by keeping their eyes on the gospel promise, on each other, on divine things. Jesus doesn't choose comfort, but that doesn't mean he isn't tempted to do so. Get behind me, Satan, he says, reminding us of that time in chapter 4 when Satan has tempted Jesus. But this time it's his friend, Peter, suggesting that he choose what's easy in the short term instead of what's good in the long term. Get behind me. An interesting choice of words, don't you think? He doesn't say go away or get on out of here. Get behind me, he says. Follow me. Follow my example. Peter must be majorly taken aback. He's still congratulating himself for knowing the right answer to who Jesus is. And now he's Satan, all for saying he doesn't want Jesus to suffer. Is he hurt or angry or defensive? 
I probably would be. To Peter's credit, he doesn't say, never mind, Jesus. I don't want to be your disciple. I'll go be a disciple of someone who doesn't call me Satan. I don't want to risk my life walking on water for you. I don't know who I say that you are. He doesn't do any of those things. He continues following. He keeps trying to understand. This may be a low point for Peter, but it's unfortunately not the lowest. When that day does come and Jesus is arrested to be put on trial, Peter will stand bravely and cut off the ear of one of the soldiers who's been sent to arrest Jesus. And he's going to get rebuked again for that. When Jesus refuses to call down fire, to exercise supernatural power to resist his trial and crucifixion, Peter will deny ever having even known Jesus. It is here that we see Peter hit rock bottom. But his story doesn't end there, does it? What about you and me? Where are we in the story? If to live is Christ and to die is gain, and those who want to save their lives will lose it, but those who lose their lives for the way of Jesus will find it. What does that mean for us? When Jesus says to follow him in the way of the cross, will we instead demand a crown? This week I read an excerpt from Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov, which is a mouthful. I'm sure I didn't say all of it correctly. But the section is called The Grand Inquisitor. It's a kind of parable told by Ivan, one of the brothers. It takes place at the height of the Inquisition, and Jesus has returned to earth to the Italian city of Seville. He's arrested by the leaders of the Inquisition as he's performing miracles, and he's sentenced to be burnt to death the next day. The Inquisitor himself visits Jesus in his cell as he awaits execution, and he explains to Jesus why the church voted yes to imperial power and no to the way of Jesus. The church no longer needs you, he says. You were wrong to refuse the power to feed the poor, perform a miraculous leap from the temple, and grab rulership over the world. We picked up where you left off and improved on what you said. In fact, we corrected your mistake. Yes, it was necessary to use the devil's principles to do so, but we do it in the name of God. What you don't understand, says the Inquisitor, is that humanity cannot handle the free will you gave them. We gave them what they really need, security from want. This is what it looks like to push Jesus to the edges and ourselves to the center of the story, to misunderstand the way, to think that the whole point is to avoid suffering. The way of Jesus is expressed in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And just a little bit later, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on your right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give your coat as well. Russell Moore is the editor-in-chief for Christianity Today, and he said he's had multiple pastors tell him a similar story. After they preach the Sermon on the Mount, they'll have a church member come up to them and say, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. Moore goes on to say, when we get to the point where we think the teachings of Jesus himself are subverted to us, then we are in a crisis. 
The good news is that they are in good company, as Peter said the same thing. The bad news is they're wrong. And so are we, if we think that there's a Christian formula that goes like this. Good Christian equals life is easy, you'll get rich and you'll get that promotion and be healthy. Bad Christian equals life is hard and you'll be poor. Nope, there's not a formula like that. It's a problem if we teach that the way of Christ equals might makes right. Or the way, the way of Christ is everybody gets a crown. The way of Christ, according to Jesus, is that what everybody gets is their own cross to carry. It's pursuing humility and meekness and turning the other cheek by giving our coat and our shirt as well. Jeez Louise, it's totally understandable if you hear that. It makes you feel like saying, no thank you, please. So why doesn't Peter turn his back? Why don't we? You might be here today as one of the afflicted needing comfort. You might be one of the comfortable needing some affliction. The truth is we're all a little bit of both, aren't we? We might have come to church thinking what we needed was a list of things to do so we can feel better or be better or get a little smarter or just check off the church box for this week. And those are all good things. But the truth is, we don't choose Christ because it's the easy road, but we, because we know that life is hard any way that you live it. Life with Jesus, with the family of God, though, it's meaningful, it's beautiful. Getting behind the cause of Jesus involves sacrifice and taking up our cross, but for something greater than ourselves, and with the insurance that it is all worthwhile. And that is good news, my friends. That, my fellow pilgrims on the way, is worth every sacrifice. Thanks be to God for his grace-filled truth. Lord, as we have heard your word today, and sung and spoken into our hearts, we know that you plant your seeds and your invitation, and you make them grow. May we be fertile soil for your kingdom. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparagold.org. May God bless you this week.